Welcome to Test Podagogy. For this episode, my guest is John Dunlosky, Professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Kent State University in the US. Hello, John. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. So today is, uh, we're going to be talking about essentially how we make learning stick, and it's uh, a good time of the year to be doing that in the UK with um, exams, well, just, just over the horizon, I guess, in about five months' time. And um, we've talked before about how, how I said your work is among the most cited at this time of year because you really looked quite in detail about how you make, how you make learning stick. Maybe we could start by just reviewing some of the really poor practices uh, uh, that people think might make learning stick, but actually you've identified in, in your work as, as not being as effective as we might think they, they are. Right, and students do a whole lot of things to prepare for their exams, some of which are really good and some of which aren't so good and are not really great use of their time. And two of those that I probably would want to point out is using highlighters to prepare for exams, that is marking up textbooks, and how students often engage with their material as they prepare for exams. So everybody uses highlighters, it's no surprise, uh, but yet some students, thank goodness a small uh, percentage of them, feel that kind of highlighting really helps improve their memory for the content. And quite a bit of research suggests that it has a relatively minimal impact. That is, it really doesn't help you learn the content. With that said, I would never take a highlighter away from a student. I have my own favorite highlighter I use all the time. But students need to know the highlighting is is really the beginning of the journey, where they're trying to identify the content that's most important for them to learn. And then they need to go back and engage with that material in a way to really improve their long-term retention and understanding of it. But highlighting itself really is relatively inert. Now, unfortunately, many students, when they go back to review what they've highlighted or what they think is most important in a textbook or their notes, they often engage in the material in ways that aren't very deep or that kind of are passive, relatively shallow. And one of these ways is simply by reading the content. As you go back and you reread it, and unfortunately when you reread something, everyone has this experience, it it feels fluent because you've already read it before. That fluency can produce kind of um, an illusion of knowing, like, wow, I really must have this down well, when in fact often we could get that illusion when we're really not that engaged with the material. Our mind is wandering, uh, we've read it before, so it's kind of boring, it's not as engaging. There's nothing wrong when a student doesn't understand something. Of course they have to go back and reread, but when they understand it relatively well and they're trying to learn it for, say, long term, really get a durable knowledge of that content, rereading really doesn't work that well. In fact, some studies show that a student who goes back and rereads doesn't get anything out of it. That is, they'd better off not even looking at it again because rereading is inert. They need to do something that's more engaging. Does that mean that they, um, no matter how many times they might reread it, it still doesn't, you know, let's say you've highlighted it, you reread it, and then um, you think, okay, have I got this? Mm, I'm going to reread it again and just before the exam, maybe, and and does that does that not have any effect still, or are we talking about I've highlighted it, I've reread it, and then I'm not going to touch it again? 
Right. It, it could have a minor effect. Again, distributed practice is great. So if you took the same simple content and you came back every other day to reread it, that will probably have some impact than merely just rereading it the first time and never coming back to it. It's just if students can use that same time they use for rereading, doing something that's more engaging, and they'll get more bang for their buck. So it'll be a much better use of time. So rereading is not entirely inert. It's just not the most effective strategy, and it can lead, again, to this um, illusion of knowing. That is, you feel like you know it because it's fluent, when in fact you won't retain that content for a long period of time. So as a teacher, and you're perhaps in a, in a lesson, and, and uh, you say, oh, you know, look in your books, you know, we're going to revise this topic today, and those, those kids, you know, read it, and they ask, and the teacher says, okay, what, what did you know, and they, they repeat it to you, and you think, good, they've got it, they, they probably haven't, is, is the answer then in, in, that, in that situation. Well, yeah, they probably, you know, there's a good chance they don't have it, because now what they're doing is regurging something that's kind of in short-term or temporary memory, that... It's good to know at least if they can repeat it then, at least they were attending to it, which is a great sign because I'm sure some of the students go back and quote-unquote reread it. Their mind is wandering, so they're not even getting it into memory, so they couldn't repeat it. But just that initial repeating immediately after rereading or reading the content, yeah, it doesn't necessarily indicate that they're going to remember that content over the long term, say, by the time they're tested on an important high-stakes exam or something like that. So why do you think we use highlighting? So you, know, you said yourself you've got a favourite highlighter, and you know if I'm preparing for a big interview, I'll, I'll, I'll underline things. And actually, when I was preparing for this this podcast, I thought actually, how often do I actually remember what I underlined? And I very rarely do I remember what I underlined. But why do we sort of fall back on that as as this sort of you know first base of of revision, if you like? Well, I, you know, one is just totally intuitive. I mean, the reason why I highlight, the reason you probably highlight and many students is we're just trying to indicate what do I need to learn? What's the most important thing? Uh, again, I use a lot of highlighting because when I want to go back to that material, I know what I need to focus on so I don't have to read it all again or engage with all of it. I can just focus on the content that's highlighted. Makes plenty of sense. Also, I think for me, because my mind wanders like everybody else's, um, highlighting at least gives me the sense that I'm staying on task, right? So it helps me to keep paying attention as I'm reading. Nevertheless, uh, it really has a relatively minor impact on subsequent memory for the content. Again, I, I wouldn't tell students not to do it. Uh, it just don't assume that that's really going to take the place of um, a deeply engaging with that material. Do you think it's useful then perhaps as a, a first step or even a, like a primer, even a, you know, getting it, getting in the groove, if you like, to, to, to use a phrase, I guess, but uh, in terms of, okay, I want to revise, this is the nice introductory task just to just to get me in, in, in the movement of, okay, I'm focusing on this, or is it even not that effective for that? Well, I, you know, certainly it's within our comfort zone, so I would say it's a great way to start Right, Because, again, you're identifying what you need to know. And, and when students take notes, for instance, because most students uh, at least say they spend a lot of time engaging with their notes, more so than textbooks, um, often they take notes that are highly relevant to the course content, and then they take seductive details that they don't need to remember. And it can make subsequent restudy more efficient if they just highlight the content 
that they think they're going to be tested on. Right. So it kind of helps you, in, again, subsequently restudying to identify that content that you think is most important with your highlighter. But doing it per se isn't going to help you necessarily memorize uh, that content. So definitely I'd say start uh, with your highlighter, but don't end with the highlighter. And before we move on to, to, to what is effective, uh, just a side note, is there any evidence that a particular color or a way of highlighting is any better than any other way? <laughs> I, I, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know of any research that's looked at it. I would be surprised if someone hasn't done it. I mean, uh, it turns out, you know, if you buy a used textbook these days, uh, get ready because it becomes already highlighted, right? So yeah. probably with an entire rainbow of colors. Uh, there, uh, research uh, done with children, um, helping them spell correctly, right? Because we all need to spell well, and there are a variety of different ways to spell. And uh, there's been one movement in the United States where it's called rainbow writing. Uh, you use different color highlighters, right, to spell words, which allegedly help students, young children, learn to spell well. And the killer was it's relatively passive. A teacher writes something down, and then you get to choose which color you use, right? Just like you might choose a different highlighter color if you're a student. And uh, we've done some research on that to show that really highlight, uh, the rainbow writing doesn't really help students that much. But yet if those same uh, first graders, second graders, use a more effective technique while they're using their rainbow colors to engage with their spelling words, they get a big boost in their uh, ability to spell those words subsequently. And how to help them engage in them is actually retrieving the spelling from memory as they're writing them in different colors. So I, I, I suspect there's really nothing to the different color. But by goodness, if you have your favorite highlighter that has a special scent to it or a special color, why not use that one, right? It makes, <laughs> it makes learning more fun. And I guess even if like even if people believe they said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll be more likely to look at it if it's a certain color. The tests you do control for that, right? So even if you think, oh, you know, I'm definitely going to be more engaged if it's written in pink or I've highlighted it in yellow, the the tests would show actually, you know, even if you think you'd be more engaged, you actually aren't, or you actually are, perhaps. <laughs> absolutely, and I suspect, you know, I again, I don't know of any specific research looking at that question, but certainly cognitive theory, how the mind operates, suggests that you know, it would have a minor impact on actual learning. But again, if it makes you happy, if it, you know, some of the things that we think as educators aren't so good, if it helps students to step up and begin studying, that is, it helps them engage versus engaging, then it is good. So if it makes you feel better to use a particular highlighter or technique because it makes you study when you would otherwise not studying, it's obviously a good thing. Mm, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because the, the research movement in the UK can be quite didactic in, in saying, you know, they, they use this, uh, this phrase quite a lot, you know, uh, as, as, a, as a time cost, you know, well, that, that might be slightly less effective, but you know, you're, you're wasting time, you should do the most effective or the most efficient, I guess, is, is, is the phrase, uh, way of doing something. But actually, if you bring what you just said into players in, well, what's the alternative is if the most efficient one, they're not going to do it, but they will do the slightly less efficient way, then maybe the slightly less efficient way is still the preferential way of doing, way of doing things. Absolutely. And here's a, kind of a concrete example. Um, 
many students like to get together with their friends to study. Okay. And we know, let's say, if you and I were getting together to study, we would probably use that time less efficiently. Uh, even if we're using a good technique, that is, we're testing each other on the material, well, we could potentially test ourselves more if we're doing it by ourselves in our own room than if we're doing it with a friend. So it is less, probably less efficient. Lots of research suggests it is. However, you know, in our minds, it, many of the students may not study without the support or social support of a friend. So if that's what it takes, by all means do it. But if you feel comfortable and happy studying on your own, you can probably do the same amount of work in less time. So, right, all of, all of these kind of uh, prescriptions for best practices are nuanced and, and uh, qualified by a whole number of factors about what is going to work best for any particular student. And so I guess now is the time to move on to what, what does work. And uh, you've, done, you've done a lot of research on this in, in terms of successive relearning. And do you want to just give us a brief overview to start with about what we mean by that? Yeah, I think the, uh, a good way to explain it is to talk about the two active ingredients for successive relearning. And there are about 100 plus years of evidence showing that these active ingredients have a real impact on the durability of students' knowledge when they use them. And the first active ingredient is retrieval practice. That is, instead of going and rereading, say, content, so going back and reading all the definitions you need to learn for an upcoming test, you test yourself on those definitions. So what is the meaning of positive reinforcement? And then you try to retrieve the meaning of that um, particular term from memory. It'll have a much bigger impact on uh, subsequent performance than if you just reread it. So retrieval practice is an active ingredient of successive relearning. Okay? The other active ingredient is space practice. So um, that is, you attempt to retrieve a concept from memory. Uh, you continue attempting to retrieve that until you can get it right during a single session. That's using retrieval practice to a criterion. Right? You, you, if you miss it one time, you again go back and restudy it. And then subsequently in that learning session, you try to retrieve it again. Then if you get it right, just like if you're using flashcards, you could put that aside. The key is, though, you have to come back. That is, two days later, you engage with the same material again in a spaced way by practicing retrieval again. So, for instance, for positive reinforcement, you might miss it during the first session, not know what it means. You restudy it. You try again. You miss it again. You're struggling, struggling, struggling until finally you can retrieve the correct meaning of positive reinforcement. When time goes by, even with that good retrieval attempt behind you, you'll still end up forgetting. I mean, it's just the nature of human memory. Hence, you need to go back and use that same strategy again on another session. So on the second session, you try to practice uh, retrieving positive reinforcement. It turns out you'll get it quicker than you did in the first session. And you keep going until you get it, get it right in that session. And then if you have a lot of motivation, two days later, a week later, you do it again with the same content. And it turns out successively relearning, that is using retrieval practice until you get it right, and then relearning it on a subsequent session produces highly durable uh, learning of that content. So if we take retrieval practice first, do we know how long we need to struggle before we, we say, nope, I definitely don't know this, let's go and relearn it? Is there a set time, you know, if you waited five minutes, would it 
suddenly come back to you or is it, is it two minutes and then restudy? Do, do we have that sort of information? Um, yes. Uh, it turns out um, something that's coming back to you that you can't retrieve could happen. But in the context of learning new content, it's unlikely to happen. So with my example with positive reinforcement, if you can't come up with the definition relatively quickly, it probably means you're not going to get it. So the question is, when is it best to then get feedback? In my mind, it's probably easiest just to immediately go and restudy that definition, look at examples of positive reinforcement and so forth. But research shows it doesn't hurt if you delay that feedback. So you know you missed positive reinforcement, but you want to test yourself on other definitions. So you can test yourself on others and then at the end of that session, go back and look at the definitions and try again. Uh, do, you, do you change the question as well in terms of, does it have to be, you know, if you, if you struggle the first time, are you asking exactly the same question the second time and the third time? Or is there any gain in rephrasing the question for the same answer? You know, I, I don't have a, we don't have data on that particular question, but my intuition is that, <laughs> excuse me, that it could matter. And just depending on how you phrase the question, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. So for instance, <laughs> when I use some of these techniques when I'm studying, if I'm struggling with positive reinforcement, I'm really not getting it. You know, I, I, I try to retrieve it multiple times and restudied it multiple times. What I might do on that next try is instead of just having the cue positive reinforcement, what is it? I would give myself positive reinforcement and part of the definition to help me out, right? And then the next time I would take part of the definition away until I can retrieve it all from memory. So basically reducing the size of that cue to push me and encourage me to eventually retrieve it all from memory, which again is going to be a struggle, right? Much harder than necessarily just rereading the content, but yet it's that struggle and eventual success that will lead to long-term uh, retention of that content. And I guess there's, there's a similar question around space practice in the sense that how long are we, do the increments between sessions, if you like, increase with time as, as, as you become more comfortable with the with, with the content or is it a set set distance of time between each session to the point I mean up to a point where you're going to use this in an exam or or use this in a presentation right there's a bit of a debate in the literature about what's the best schedule for uh, space practice however in my mind often the debate itself does not extend to education because students have a truncated amount of time they can use the strategy in so for instance, with just, you know, if students wait to the last moment, the last couple of weeks to start studying, you can only space so much. You just have only so much time. What I tend to recommend to students is, you know, uh, try to space your practice of the most critical content in this way two or three times before the exam. And then the night before, instead of cramming all night, use that last session just to review all the material again. Um, for longer periods of time, however, if we're talking across years, it probably is better to, again, expand that spaced schedule. So the first time you come back to material, it's relatively soon, after a couple of days. Then if you get it right that first time when you come back to it, then wait a week and then wait a month. And after a while, it's going to be part of uh, what's called semi-permanent knowledge. You just will not forget that content. Most students don't have the luxury to do that, however. And does it, how individualized is, is that, is that journey? I mean, 
I mean, what sort of cognitive processes are, are is it reliant on and how different are those processes between, say, two or three individuals in a class? Okay. What I love about successive relearning is that this strategy is outrageously individualized to each student. <laughs> because let's just say you and I are studying the same content and using this technique. And let's say for whatever reason, I have a little bit background knowledge, I'm a little bit more fluent in that content. It may only take me one or two tries to correctly recall that content in the first session until I can correctly recall it from memory. You may be struggling because you just don't have as much background knowledge as I do. Hence, it may take you three or four tries to get it right. With that said, the key is that we both are going until we get it right. Yeah, it may take you longer than me, but if we both persist until we get it right, we're going to get that same major a boost in our retention of that content. Mm. One individual difference, though, that uh, could disrupt or improve learning in this context, and that might be clear if I give you an example here, is students' ability to evaluate whether they are correctly retrieving the content. So for positive reinforcement, um, a relatively complex idea in um, psychology, students could retrieve a definition of positive re reinforcement that is not correct. Okay. that a teacher would say, well, yeah, that's kind of right, but it's really not right at all. So to use this technique well, especially for complicated material like conceptual definitions that students need to know, they also have to be really careful to check the quality of what they're retrieving from memory. What I recommend students do, instead of just trying to retrieve, say, conceptual definitions or, um, say, long explanations for processes like say, how does bat echolocation work? So just retrieving that from memory in your head to actually externalize it and to write the definition out. By writing it out, it allows them then to physically compare what they wrote to the correct definition, to the feedback. And that comparison can then help them evaluate or monitor, do I have it correct or yet am I still confused? If you don't do that, then they run the risk of, okay, well, I recalled something. Uh, if I recalled it, it must be right when it's not, and hence you could be retrieving the incorrect information and hence learning the incorrect content. So an important part of successive relearning and making this work well <laughs> is to make sure that you evaluate correctly whether or not you're recalling the correct content. For simple stimuli like learning foreign language vocabulary, uh, that's pretty easy to do because you just match one word to another word. Do, do I have the right word? For definitions, it just takes a little bit more work. And I guess in that in that in that process, you have a you have a problem as a teacher because you're going to have to individualize quite a lot. I mean, is there a risk that let's say the average person in that class needs? Um, Free sets of uh, free sessions to to get it really like hammered in, but at the top end of that, you have someone who got it first time. How is how does that impact them? Are they just bored and it doesn't really matter, or are they are, are they learning it even more, or how does that impact that person? Well, that person certainly in that context would be overlearning. Okay, and uh, quite frankly, I can only imagine that could get boring for them. 
this particular technique, successive relearning, how we have been viewing it? Is it something that the students would use on their own outside of the classroom as they're preparing for exams? So a teacher, in when I teach my own courses, I give students concepts that I want them to know and then just expect that they will go out and learn them on their own. And if they use this technique outside of the class, well, they'll really be well prepared. But note, <coughs> by using this technique outside of the class, the student who's already on top of things will quickly realize they know it and hence can stop and do something else, whereas the student who's struggling a bit, you know, can keep going until they get it right. So I don't think the technique would be as easy to use within the, the uh, context of a classroom. And how much does the, does the role of motivation, uh, confidence, and emotion, I guess, play in, in, the, in this whole relearning um, approach in the sense of if you're very stressed by the oncoming exam, if you're overconfident, uh, if your motivation comes from your parents promising you a certain uh, reward for a good result or your motivation comes intrinsically, do all those things play a part or are they sort of controlled for? They have to play a part and they probably play a, a very large part in all of this because um, if you don't persist, right, you're, you're not going to eventually learn that content. So the question is how to intrinsically motivate students to continue going till they get it right. I wish I could tell you how to intrinsically motivate students to use this technique effectively so that they really can learn the most important content in classes and learn it so they retain it for a long period of time. What I can tell you, however, is that most students are already using successive relearning quite a lot and are becoming quite proficient at many things. For instance, almost every student is good at something, almost everyone is good at something, whether it's uh, playing video games, uh, dancing, playing musical instruments, and so forth. And the way folks get good at those things, they don't realize it, but they use successive relearning. That is, you play your video game one night, you keep playing it until you do well, and then you struggle some. You get bored, but then what does the student do? They go back the next night, and they play the same video game. That is successive relearning. So the key is, how do we help students realize that what the technique that is allowing them to master skills outside of education is the same technique that they have to engage in to excel in education? That's something that our particular research group is really on and interested in. It's just that like many others before us, uh, we have not figured out that magic pill to really get students to uh, do those more effective but yet more effortful strategies that's going to lead to the best outcomes. It seems like mot motivation research is a really quite complex area of, of academia and, and education research in particular and what, what drives people and, you know, whenever whenever... Uh, certain theories come to light, in, in you know, especially from cog science, people say, well, okay, what role is motivation playing there? What role is emotion playing there? And you get, you tend to get the same answer, which is a bit, well, we don't really know. And is that a problem, or is that just the nature of the beast in a way? Well, I, you know, I think it's a problem uh, from a scientific perspective, because until we really understand it, it's hard to control it. And motivation is going 
to drive educational outcomes. And this is more descriptive. If a student's not persisting in their study, and then we could just describe it as that student's not motivated. If we truly understand core aspects of motivation, well, then it seems like we could help students control it more and get them more engaged. What I think a difficulty is, however, is that sometimes, at least in education, people believe that simply, simply motivating students, giving them the right mindset or grit, is going to help them out. And it turns out I could develop a really good motivated student who wants to achieve, who thinks they can achieve, but yet if they don't have the right tools to achieve, that is the right strategies and the right background knowledge, they will still struggle. So. There's a sweet spot between getting that mo motivated student on the one hand, but yet a motivated student who has all the right tools at their disposal so that when they are engaging in content, they really are capable of learning it. So just the belief that you're capable is certainly not enough. It also has to be the belief and motivation along with the appropriate skills. That's why, for instance, when you have the belief that you can become a good drummer, well, that's possible, right? But you're really going to excel when you go and start getting lessons and someone giving you all the right strategies to drum well. And that, along with the motivation to become, I don't know, a famous drummer in a band, is what will help you to excel uh, into stardom. Well, it's the same thing goes for education. We need both a motivation, a motivated student, but a motivated student with the right skills and strategies. And you mentioned before that perhaps trying to do space practice and retrieval practice within the classroom may be problematic because you, you, the kids are all at different stages of, of that process. Does the teacher role therefore become more about trying to create that motivation for them to do it in their own time, perhaps rather than walking them through those retrieval practice and space practice elements within the school day? Right. Uh, yeah. First, uh, what I meant to suggest was that successive relearning, where you're struggling and you keep going until you get it right, for at least some students with difficult material, may just take too much time for a classroom setting. With that said, the active ingredient of retrieval practice and space practice is still something that teachers can engage in uh, relatively effectively in a classroom without uh, disrupting class or taking too much time. For instance, uh, giving a good multiple choice quiz daily, three or four questions, and then repeating some of those questions over time for the most important content can help those students learn that material. And it does so for two reasons. First, just obviously engaging in retrieval practice for all those students who already understand the content and retrieve it correctly during that short amount of time, well, they'll get a big bang for their buck and they'll retain that knowledge better. The good news is for the students who are struggling and in that same amount of time they miss those questions, it helps those students realize, I don't know this content. So then outside of the classroom, they can go study more go talk to the teacher like, you know, you keep asking me this important question about this content that you want us to know and I keep missing it. What is going wrong here? So I think some of these strategies teachers can use, but just the full-blown success of relearning may take too much time. For, for instance, the, to successively relearn just 10 conceptual definitions that might be important for a class takes college students about 40 minutes the first time. That's a real amount of time. 
Now, the second time they come back two days later, it takes 15 minutes. The next time, three, uh, two, the third session, two days later, it's going to take them five minutes because as you really begin to understand and retain that content, successive relearning or retrieval becomes very efficient and fast because they know it. Nevertheless, using that full-blown technique, successive relearning in the classroom just may take too much teacher time, but that doesn't mean they can't be using uh, quizzing to their benefit, uh, to the student's benefit. They just, you know, probably only want to spend five to ten minutes of class doing that kind of thing. Do you need to weigh that up against the danger, I guess, if, if you're the kid that is always near the bottom in those tests and everyone else seems to get it, but they disengage completely or that they lose confidence completely versus uh, becoming at that stage of the, the class or that, that level of the class maybe two or three times and it's inspirational? It seems like there's, a, there's probably a, a tipping point there between I'm going to keep trying this and I'm never going to get it. Yeah, you certainly don't want to demoralize uh, students who are struggling, uh, but the teachers can use the outcomes of those low-stakes quizzes to at least identify those students who are struggling and then maybe do a slightly different kind of intervention to help them out, uh, if that makes sense. So it's like, oh, wow, the student continues to struggle before they get demoralized. Uh, maybe I can develop a, a simple lesson to help them understand the content. So it's the idea that not only these quizzes just help the students learn the content, but they can provide formative evaluation for teachers uh, so they get a better sense about what the students are struggling with and hence how to shape uh, their instruction later on in class. But yeah, it's definitely a fine line between uh, helping a student realize that they can do something versus uh, maybe showing a student that they struggle and demoralizing them. I mean, in our own research, admittedly using successive relearning, what really shocked us to begin with is first, of course, all students struggle to learn difficult concepts this way. But after two or three sessions of the struggling where they come back and finally could retrieve this content, even the ones who were the worst students, they tell us they can't believe they can learn so much content, that they've never learned so much content so so well in the past. So it, sure, part of it can be demoralizing, but like you said, if they finally get it, it's almost liberating. It's like, wow, I can really learn this content if I just use the right strategies. But unfortunately, a lot of the best strategies come with struggle, right? I mean, it, it's they're not the easiest strategies, even though they're the best strategies. So. Yeah, I guess it's a case of the teacher knowing the students pretty well to know when to, okay, you need, I'm going to give you a, a, a different type of homework this week, for example. You know, we're going to, we're going to, or I'm going to take you aside for 10 minutes and do a slightly different lesson with you at the point where that struggle gets too much for each individual. And I imagine that point's different for every individual as well. Every individual, and certainly, I mean, it puts a lot of burden on an individual teacher, right, to shape their uh, instruction in a way that's going to pinpoint um, say groups of struggling students. That said, um, are you familiar with John Hattie's work? Mm, yeah. Invisible learn uh, is visible learning. That. Yeah. And that's all about formative evaluation and how uh, teachers need to leverage an understanding of students' strengths and weaknesses to shape their instruction in a way to really help all the students along. Uh, by no means is this an easy thing to do. And I guess my, my final question then is if anyone's listening to this and thinking, 
mm, I haven't haven't really done this with my class yet, and we're five months out from the exams. Is it too late to 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 start in in effect? Not no, not at all. In fact, five months would be great. The the advice I would give, however, if if they want to develop successive relearning program for their students to use outside of the classroom would be really knowing that it does take a long time to successive relearn. I think really the onus is on the teachers to decide what are the most important concepts that these students need to learn and take those subset of the concepts and have the students use successive relearning outside of the class to learn them, to not overburden the students. Um, so the idea is less is more to some degree. So whatever they really want the students to know well, um, they help the students utilize successive relearning to master it, basically. But no, five months is plenty of time for a great deal of information uh, to learn a great deal. But yeah, it's probably time to start because I'm sure the students have a tsunami of content they need to learn. And uh, yeah, good luck to all of them. I mean, I would I would start studying now. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. That's been an excellent interview. Thank you very much. I've had a great time. Thanks.